blow my head off. Strange things are happening. It's the day of retribution. I run the underworld, guy. It's Ricardo Lopez. The game is mine. I deal the cards. Welcome back to Snuffbox Podcast, from your host Mark, M-A-R-K, this is episode 17 and it's probably one of the most important and cool episodes I've ever done. This is an interview with true crime best-selling author and journalist Paul Williams. He's the author of 10 best-selling books such as The General and Murder, Inc., the first of which was made into a movie. He's also researched, written and presented a number of major factual TV crime series for Virgin Media and RTE. He's broken the biggest true crime stories in Ireland for the past 30 years. He worked for the Sunday World, the Irish News of the World and the Irish Independent and also co-hosted the News Talk Breakfast Show. He researched and presented a special one-hour documentary on the international drug trade for the BBC World Service. In 2013, he won a string of awards for his Anglo Tapes investigation. He spearheaded a hugely successful nationwide campaign, which he exposed the true extent of road crime. Paul holds an MA in Criminology and is also a recipient of the Department of Justice's Award for Outstanding Academic Achievement for his research work. Wow. I am out of breath reading all that. It is an absolutely huge honour to have Mr. Williams on the podcast. I shot him an email a couple of months ago, not expecting him at all to reply and to get one back. When I did get it, I was hugely shocked. He's a huge name in Irish journalism and to have him take time out of his busy schedule to get on and talk to me is, is I'm very grateful and very nice. We discuss his career, we get into the backlash he's faced, which he has faced a lot of. You can... um. That can be expected expected with a, a career of his length. You can Google a bit, and if you look up the Morris McCabe smear campaign, you can get some of the details. But we talk about what, how he how he's faced it, and what he kind of does, and what he thinks of it. Um, we also discussed um, current uh, true crime stories from Ireland in the world and the media at the moment. Um, you know what? Just go listen to it. It's a it's a great interview. So without further enjoy enjoy the episode, and thanks again to Mr. Williams for coming on. So um, this is an interview with uh, Paul Williams. He's a very well-known true crime author, a criminologist, and a journalist. He's worked at the Sunday World, the Irish Sun, the Irish Independent. He's written books, um, only to name just a few, um, Gangland, Evil Empire, Crime Lords, The Untouchables, Crime Wars, and Badfellas, and recently his new book, The Monk. Um, just first off, thanks for agreeing to do this. I know you're very busy, so to make time for a, a student podcast is a, is a huge thing. Well, it's a pleasure. You're, it's a pleasure. You guys are... Uh... Uh, the, you know, you guys are the heroes at the moment because you're the fellas putting up with the most uh, disruption as a result of COVID-19 and fair play, you know, doing your leaving cert at the same time. So if I can lighten a half an hour of your night, I'd be delighted. That's great. So you've had an amazing career in Irish media over the years. And I actually remember, you know, when I was younger, seeing your face kind of all across all these different shows, not just one. How did you get your start into that? How do you become not just one guy in a show, but you become a personality in the media? And what was your first kind of big project or book? Well, you know, you want to be a journalist yourself, Mark. Um, you don't set out to be any kind of a personality, and I would never consider myself any kind of a... When people talk about celebrities and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I started out, uh, I wanted to be a journalist, and I wanted to be... Um, and it was my big dream. And I had had a very difficult sort of secondary school education period because uh, I was expelled from two schools in uh, something like four years. Uh, and I was a bit of a wild young fella, and I was lucky in the end to actually get an, an education when I went to the third school, which was a tech, which is why I, I've empathized so much with, with, with students and people trying to do their leave and serve at the moment and all yeah. of that. Um, yeah. And I developed a love for journalism because I wanted to tell people, I, I was very, it was, there were very 
there were brilliant um, British. We had access because I grew up along the border and we always had access to British television. But the British did the best documentaries in the world uh, and really good investigative stuff. There was a program called World in Action. I remember used to watch that as a kid and I was really taken by the kind of really in-depth kind of investigations yeah. we used to do. And not today, tonight, here in Ireland, started doing stuff, decent stuff as well. And so I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell people stories that they didn't know. And I wanted to get, I wanted to do good, you know, the usual nonsense. And also then I would be wild and mad. And I also wanted to be a war correspondent. Yeah, you know, the excitement of it. Like... Adrenaline, yeah. And we're all, you know, starry-eyed. But anyway, I got into journalism. Uh, I got into this College of Commerce in Rat Mines, which was a very the only journalism school in Ireland. It was a premier one, and and still is. It's now the new DIT. I think it's called Dublin Technology University or something. Even though I've yeah. passed, passed people again, but um, and there were something like uh, twenty five positions and four hundred kids applied for it. It was outside the CAO and all of that at the time. Yeah. So it would be very elitist. So it was a dream to actually even get to college to sit down and say I was being given an opportunity to study journalism in the first place. And I was very, very lucky uh, in that uh, I was accepted and I got the necessary uh, results of my leaving cert, much to the great surprise of my parents <laughs> and anybody who knew me, uh, including some of my teachers who said I'd end up in prison, uh, which is ironic. I ended up ironic, in yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, I went and studied with a close friend of mine, like Stephen Ray. We, I went to college in 19, Jesus, 1983, you know, probably before your dad was even going to school. And uh, and we've been close friends since then. And Stephen became the um, editor-in-chief of the Independent News and Media. And he's now um, a co-director with me on the International Fall Prevention Conference. Mm, yeah. Like that. And we're close friends. Orla Gearn, who is very, very well known at BBC, she was uh, she was in cl my class um, uh, and several other people who became editors. So I, I suppose it was it, it was an environment whereby practically anyone who got into it were really intent on doing it and yeah. staying and, and, and the proof of the pudding was that they all did so well. I, I was I went to work then in, in local newspapers for a few years. I went to work in my local newspaper, the Leitrim Observer, for about six months. And then I went to work in Longford, in the Longford News, for two years. And then the job came up in the Sunday World. Uh, it was advertised in 1986. I applied for it, along with those hundreds of people applied for it. There were two junior reporters being taken on, one female, one male. Uh, and they were into um, gender balance before anybody even thought about it those days. Um, yeah. And I was recruited uh, after a long process, along with uh, Kathy Kelly, who is now an international best-selling multimillionaire author, myself, um, uh, as she's still a very great friend of mine. Um, yeah. So I, I, I started working there. How did I get involved in, I wanted to work for the Sunday World because the Sunday World had a sort of a, uh, you know, an ethos of, of, of doing investigative stuff and undercover stuff, which people weren't doing at all in this country. And how to do that. And I used to read that when I was a kid at home and I wanted to do that kind of thing and uh, and it was a bit of excitement again a bit of adrenaline and in, I joined in 1987 and within six months you couldn't avoid crime as a big story because first of all the fellow called The Monk who I've just written my most recent book about all these years later 1987 he pulled off the biggest cash robbery in the history of the state at that time 1.35 million pounds robbery which I think Jeez, I think I've done the equivalents or the conversions in the uh, in the book, but I think you're talking about could be 10, 15 million today. In one um, 
Yeah, one go. And he did he did that a couple more times, fair play to him. But anyway, then I, a fellow called the general, Martin Cattle, started making a nuisance of himself and started. He was known about. Now, the daily newspapers didn't really cover a lot of this stuff, but they couldn't really avoid this character. And everybody, we were hearing about him all the time and we started looking at him. And he started, uh, he would, then was targeted by the Guardian, a very high profile, really heavy duty stuff uh, investigation and cops following him everywhere on the street it was really dramatic stuff for 1987 yeah. 88 because it was the kind of thing that never happened it was miami vice uh, on the streets of dublin cops walking around looking more like gougers than the gougers following and uh, then we had a fellow called desi uh, o'hare who was back in prison again which shows that old habits die hard with these thugs but he yeah. was a member of the INLA. he was the leader of the INLA. he was a butcher a, a, a mass murderer uh, along the border, but he kidnapped a man called John O'Grady, and for about two, three, four weeks, he and his merry men, there was this massive manhunt across Ireland, which the likes of which you guys have never seen in modern Ireland. Um, thousands of soldiers and police were involved, and this guy cut off this man's poor man's fingers, and uh, eventually they were caught and shot. So, and it was a huge international story. So those three big, big characters, stroke stories. Uh, were were dominating the headlines in 1987. Yeah. So it was inevitable when I had a, an interest in it, and I had a very good news editor at the time, Sean Boyd, brilliant guy, who ushered me into it, had a big interest in crime, he kept all these files in it for years, and suddenly had somebody who was interested in studying them and going after yeah. certain people and targeting them and writing about them. And, and that's basically where I, I started. And from then on, I, I became the first so-called bylined crime reporter in an Irish newspaper because the rest of the newspapers at that time had security correspondents, the daily papers, and yeah. they were more gentleman reporters, really. And they covered things like the big stories of the day. And remember, we were in the middle of the troubles in Northern Ireland. So the IRA and the Northern terrorism was very, very big in, in, in our news and our daily lives as well. And there was a big war going on with the provisional IRA who were butchering and murdering and kidnapping people down here as well as in the North. And so that was dominating. So there was a lot of the security correspondents were right, a lot of it, stuff military and stroke police security operations. And then you had the courts report just what people were, you know, what criminals were convicted. But there was nobody really going into the background of these guys. Yeah. Following them through, humanizing them and fully laying bare their, their lives to the public. And over time, we started doing that. And I started doing that. And I, I started doing a little bit of undercover work with some of my colleagues, which again was part of the adrenaline childish buzz of things we were buying drugs from different criminals and gangs and stuff like that and exposing them and when i think back on it now when i look at what has that happened crazy. in the 30 odd years since then <laughs> uh, you know we, we were really really innocent and the whole thing was very very innocent yeah just because ireland didn't know or had never faced anything like that so you're kind of in the the right place at the right time kind of got into the industry when but that we stuff were involved and i suppose it was in i was the guy who got on the surfboard I suppose at the start of the wave, yeah, uh, that was the start. And like I've, I've, I've become a specialist in organized crime and the history of organized crime and the evolution of organized crime in Ireland. And um, you know, you as I, I've studied it many times since then, I could see where I was starting, uh, and that was at very much at the beginning of when it was starting to take hold of the concept or the phenomenon of what we call organized crime, and the emergence of these major criminal figures, which who who had never featured before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and and then I followed it right through. So it, it was a very, very exciting, and it, it, I have to say it was, it was has been a very exhilarating, exciting, sometimes terrifying, sometimes heartbreaking, but it has been, you know, if I was 
to go to my maker tomorrow and I was asked, you know, what regrets do you have? I wouldn't have one major regret in my career. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I worked with great people. Uh, we broke big stories, really big yeah. stories. And, uh, and we helped a lot of people and we pissed off an awful lot of people. And I got incurred the wrath and jealousy of a lot of our <laughs> colleagues and shite like that is because it the media business is a is yeah. a cutthroat business but you know what it was rock and roll you had fun you had fun it was rock and roll yeah and i remember every bit of it i like the real rock and rollers <laughs> you should you should, you should write a um, biography autobiography about all your stories anyone read it mark jesus <laughs> bestseller um were you ever afraid that you would end up hurt as a result of um hunting these guys down or exposing these gangs was there ever an incident where you did get hurt or you feared like for your life well you know the macho thing would be to say no but yeah. uh, there have been so many incidents through the years um from the very first threat i can remember back to the early 90s um right through when i you know you have to remember i, I lived with the police lived with me and my family full-time, 24-7, 365, for, um, I think it was, 14 years non-stop. Jeez. Um, and during that period of time, at the beginning of that security operation, which was uh, it was precipitated in, 19, in 2003, after I wrote a book called uh, Crime Wars, and it really pissed them off. And the INLA and various other gangs, they wanted to kill them. There was all this information about being killed. And then it culminated with the planting of a very elaborate hoax device in my home because they decided they would move from killing me to, to uh, <laughs> uh, seriously harassing and pissing me off. But yeah. I lived with for two years and the state considered it necessary. I didn't ask for it uh, to um, assign two armed bodyguards with me everywhere I went for over two years of my life every day. Um, in fact, when they left and the, the police presence continued at my home uh, for the next, for, for that 13, 14 year period. Um, but when the, the, the bodyguards left me, it took me about 24 hours, 48 hours or a period of time to readjust to be normal again, whereby yeah. I could walk around and, and, and not be looking over your shoulder and saying, where are the lads? Is somebody going to shoot me? Because that reimposed it. Now, going back to the, the, your, sorry, your, your original question, um, there were times when, Yes, I know I came very, very close to being shot. Um, in there were so many different incidents, but I, I've been very, very lucky. I've had a few run-ins uh, with criminals on a physical level as well. Sometimes yeah. uh, I was always pretty well able to look after myself on that one, so nobody ever injured me. Uh, they might have hurt my ego, but they didn't hurt me physically. And you know, I, I grew up. Uh, it's not. I was never a shrinking violet, so I was always well able to mind myself, when we put it like that. And also, you learned, you develop an instinct to remind yourself. But yeah, remember in nineteen ninety four when my daughter was, uh, my wife was pregnant with Irene and my daughter, and uh, the cattle gang at the time, Martin Cattle's gang, had decided that they were going to burn my home. Uh, because I'd written this big expose about Martin Cahill, and ironically, he was murdered then in August of that year, 1994. But it, so suddenly the police arrived and said, "Look!" And at, at that, before that, there had been sporadic incidents, but we were very young yeah. and, and naive, and you didn't know this was never done before. Journalists had never been threatened before, and uh, and this was before Veronica even arrived on the scene. But um, the uh, so they told me we, we have to mind you, and I I always sort of had a certain. <clears throat> excuse me um 
regard for Martin Cahill after that because his gang suggested we have to get this fellow Williams to shut these guys up because Cahill was very good he didn't care who he went after like he he shot he blew up the state forensic scientist in 1982 something that no criminal or terrorist gang had ever done yeah. it was extraordinary absolutely extraordinary crime um, he abducted a senior a, a, a social welfare inspector who had cut off his dole money in 1988 and shot him in the legs um, so it it was was not outside his ability to come along and burn me and my family. But yeah. on that occasion, he said to his criminal fellow criminals that we're not going to burn his home because his wife and kids live there. Now, he would have known everything about me because it would have been watching me and all that kind of stuff. And as I say, we were very young and naive and nobody was as you know as careful as we became afterwards. Two years later, for obvious reasons, when Veronica was murdered. But, um, and he then, <laughs> they said, well, we'll burn down the uh, Sunday world printing press <laughs> and he said no, we can't do that either we can't do that he said because most of his mates who were pigeon fanciers and he was into pigeon fancying that he ran pigeons racing pigeons 20 or 30 <laughs> grand piece pigeons and he said if we burned that all the lads that he knew in the pigeon club would lose oh, their jobs the so pigeon club began. <laughs> then when the day martin was murdered um martin cattle was murdered on the 18th of august in 1994 um and it was just so ironic because somebody who played a big role in our lives at that period of time, my wife then went into premature labor on the Saturday, just two days afterwards, when I was about to write the biggest story of ever at that stage, because we could now write the full unvarnished story about Martin Cattle that had been compiled and that hadn't been allowed print at the time again, because in trouble. it was all uncharted waters and people were afraid at those times they wouldn't publish everything that you did. But, um, and, and my daughter then ironically was born on the, uh, the, the night of Martin Cattle's removal. Um, which was extraordinary. But in terms of threats, going through the years, I remember other incidents where, you know, my son's school in Turinure, uh, he was in Turinure College, it was locked down um, on one occasion when when uh, Martin Foley, the Viper, and a few of his associates purposely walked around the school looking in the windows. Uh, and the school immediately recognized what that was about, and the place was surrounded by cop cars. And he didn't mind the, the fact that the police, he didn't expect them to, to turn up in the force that they did, but then when he was pulled in, he he didn't mind because he wanted to be known that he was mooching around. Yeah. Um, there were and that was to target things. you and your son, like that wasn't just a random incident, that was to target your, your son because he went to that school. Yeah, but it was to target, let you know where your son went to school. And like, yeah. uh, then there were issues where we used to be, like, he, People have no idea, like when you're living under that this regime, you have to teach your kids um, to be, you know, watch things that other kids wouldn't be asked to watch. You know, everybody is careful with their kids because obviously we live in a very dangerous world and we have to be very, you know, very watchful all the time. But I teach my kids about, you know, to be extra, extra careful about people coming to the house and that. Now we have cameras, we had camera systems in our house. Nobody had camera systems in their house. Um, and you, you were always a bit scared that the kids would be maybe tried, that somebody might try and take them. There was another time when a guy, my house was surrounded by the police and we were in bed on a Sunday morning uh, when a notorious heroin dealer, um, big player, basically was being listened to by the, the police were bugging his phones and they picked him up screaming down the phone that he was coming to attack my home that morning and in fact he, his plan was at one stage to attack my wife and as he was driving the police converged and they're waiting for him because they were listening live to what he was saying and somebody convinced him not to do it so you had loads of 
incidents like that. There was another time when uh, I, I learned about, um, it was many months later, but it was it, everything came cor suddenly correlated for me, made sense of where I was to go to a meeting with a, some individual had a story for me, allegedly, who had given me information before I didn't know who the person was, but I was to meet them in a hotel in town, which of course then you, you don't probably meet somebody in a public place, but apparently the person who had been assigned to shoot me was there because he wanted to see what I looked like. It was the, 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 uh, the Exchequer Hotel on, on Exchequer Street in Dublin. And it was only six months later that uh, a cop friend of mine actually confided this to me because they were been told not to tell me about it at the time. So you didn't know any of it, like for your own safety yeah, or for... So that was the nearest thing. The guy wanted to, well, he was a professional, anyway, he wanted to make sure he wasn't going to shoot the wrong person. So he wanted to see what it looked like. But all those little, all those things are part of the long, or part of the big, the tapestry of 30 years. But, um, it's, and it's a very elongated way of answering a very short question, but um, it has played a big role in my life. But at the same time, there were times I was nervous. And yes, there were many, many years that it dominated my life. And reminded me every day, every day I walked outside my front door here on the house, at the house, there's a police cabin outside my door. So I met guards, every, the first people I met every morning for 13, 14 years was a member of a guard Shikona. I'm very honored and privileged that they were there and they were brilliant people and I've never been anything but supportive to our men and women in blue. Mm. It sounds like it was very disruptive to your own home life. Like was it hard to separate you know, thinking about the gangs all the time to just have a normal family time, everyday life? Well, I, th I think that most men, uh, one thing I learned, I, I was quite young when I became a dad. So, you know, I think that most men only get to a certain level of maturity to become fathers uh, when they're into their thirties. When mm. they're into their 30s. Because I can tell you that I'm in, mid 50s now and my wife did tell me that I'm a bleak child <laughs> the immaturity of a 14 a 12 year old I would insult 12 year olds back in um, uh, so I, I, I the point I'm making is that yes I was completely driven by career it was exciting it was high octane stuff that was going on also, you know I was really it was always a buzz and it becomes Saturday in mm. the Sunday we'd finish on Saturday and go for a few pints we go on a few points all the week now, in fairness, as well. We were funded for a few points and going to the gym and stuff like that, and working and trying to get in family life as well. But by Saturday evening, you'd be, you go home and you'd sit down at a glass of wine and you'd chow over the week, and then it would take you about 24 hours, 48 hours just to chill because we didn't work on a Monday. So mm. I all enjoyed Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays would be a quiet day as well. Because, and then could you drive it up again and then start all over again? And it was a uh, great crack. But um, yeah. Sorry, I don't know where I was going with that. Anyway, you put me back on track. Yeah. I'll do the next question. So, so obviously, as you said, you faced a lot of backlash over the years. Um, there was one time when you released um, Murder, Inc. about the boom in organized crime in Limerick during the 90s and 2000s where um, you had a signing in, in O'Mahony's in Limerick, the bookshop, that garnered a lot of hate. Why was there so much backlash? I about that, actually. Yeah. I about that. Um, yeah, why was there so much backlash to that? Would you change anything about that situation or are you happy with how it went no, I was. That was the Kellys in Limerick. Um, I'd written about uh, Mikey Kelly, who is dead now, but he was a notorious folk. That's quite a despicable character, um, even though he is dead. But he, he was a man who helped usher in uh, the climate that prevailed in Limerick that allowed... McCarthy Dundons in particular, and the Kings and the Colopies, 
uh, to develop and thrive. Uh, he created that level of intimidation. He corrupted everything that he touched. He played the game because he was also an alderman, remember? He was in Limerick Corporation and uh, Limerick City Council. And he played on that. And he used that political decision and he tried to embarrass other people. He was, a, he was an appalling individual. And all he was doing was basically, he was fronting up, he was a mob boss, pretending to be respectable. And uh, he was very good at it. But he was very good. I wrote quite extensively about it. But anyway, when I wrote about him in the book, members of his clan, or his, his friends, uh, decided they were going to do a protest. And the police uh, put a heavy presence around the shop. I had no problem meeting them yeah. at all. Shite, they're not going to say intimidate me. They never intimidated me before. Uh, and uh, fair play to be but a Limerick who took those guys on through the years. That's why they're all behind bars and it's a peaceful, tr- thriving city now, but a brilliant place. And um, so the, the shop then decided that they they were worried, they were very worried. And you can understand, they're ordinary, decent people. They don't, yeah, you have a guy who's attracted <laughs> half, the, half the gangsters in Limerick into the shop and have armed police all through the place saying, This is cool. Actually, bad retirement. <laughs> in the place, and I remember that day they were in the shop and they were saying, "Listen, this is cool." They were saying to the shop, "There is no problem. Those guys yeah. come in through that door; they're going to be arrested straight away." <laughs> they were <scared. laughs> more nervous, so it was cancelled at the last minute. But I got a couple of nights in Limerick anyway, yeah. which I, I always love going to Limerick. I'm a bit of crack, a lot of friends down there. When I was doing my kind of research and when I was asking people around about your books and when I was doing my own reading, um, they said that you kind of sensationalize the gang bosses in a way um do you think that uh turning kind of normal criminals into kind of almost el chapo kind of pablo escobar kind of kingpins is wrong and kind of helps them more do you agree with that or first of all what you say against that in your in your question pablo escobar and mario guzman uh, el chapo they existed they were real people they butchered thousands of people uh, so they were real. They're not just characters. Um, so they weren't cardboard characters. They weren't glamorous. It, it's a very, it's a well, well-worn um, accusation that you glamorize people. And I've studied criminal psychology uh, quite extensively. And for me, it sort of illustrates the sort of uh, ambivalence that are that is in every individual because. We are vast majority of us are conformists. We obey the law. We live a normal lives. We do what the system creates us to do. Yeah. Whatever and the system of living, you know, we don't, you know, go shooting people or attacking people. There are laws, rules, regulations. You drive on a certain side of the road. You stop at traffic lights. You observe the tax. You know, there is a, there's a whole structure around life. But we then view the people who are outside of that, the deviants or the criminals who live in the so-called netherworld or underworld, who are beyond our rules and regulation of our society. Mm. We, we, we fascinated by them. Crime is a huge industry, both in drama, in nonfiction, you know, like people are vastly, in the Irish Independent, we run a story about a major criminal online and you could get 200,000 hits on it whereas other stories might get 10,000. And that people are fascinated by it for a multitude of reasons, but principally because they're fascinated because these people are, are rule breakers. These people are outside the fold. These people are outside the line. And they are fr- fascinated because in that fascination, there are multiple elements. There is fear. Some people also have a begrudging admiration for criminals who are making money. 
there was fear. There was also hatred. There is, and hatred for these people comes from a fear of them. And uh, there was also a level of astonishment that people could do these kind of things. Like that young lad who was last, this time last year, was taken away and cut up in yeah. pieces and put in a bag. Like that. It's just so outside is, of everything that we know normally. Like That is so on the beyond. And that was very much redolent of the, uh, the South American cartels. But going back to the word of glamorization. In the Sunday World through the years, I was the guy who pioneered the concept of giving criminals nicknames. Mm. The reason we had nicknames was because in order for a reader to identify that this, we couldn't name them because of laws of libel that sue you at the time. So in order to uh, get Mark Cusack, who's a notorious criminal, he hasn't been convicted of it and he's running all the rackets around. Yeah. So we go after you. But we have to, we can't name you. But we have to, when we're writing about you, let everybody know who you are, or as much as we can let them know about you, because that's our job. Our job is to inform the public and let them make up their own minds and know what these people are about. So we would have to, I had to come along with a concept too, of, of making, making up names, and that's become the the the, the regard of, of, of the business ever since. Uh, and I'm, I'd have to make up a name for you, and we'd run a picture of you, and we'd black out your eyes. Mm. Now, then people would extrapolate later on that Mark Cusack, when you are named and the strap strip is eventually taken off your eyes and you can be named, you know, Mark Cusack, the general of Limerick. Um, so Williams glamorized him. Why? Because he put a nickname on him. But the reason I've just explained to why he put the nickname on him. But then people say you're glamorizing somebody by writing about them and saying about their lifestyle and what they're doing. If they were being glamorized, glamorizing something makes it implies that the person being glamorized is very very happy with being glamorized because it's a very positive uh, thing. flattering yeah. thing um, but the reality is if they were all of a sudden glamorized then why then did they threaten to kill me somebody why then did they and this is I know there's another question I'm going to bounce around on your questions here but they murdered my friend and my colleague Veronica here in 1996 the 26th of June 1996, our world has changed. In 2001, a UVF drug gang in Lorigan murdered my very good friend and colleague in the Sunday world, Martin O'Hagan, who they've been threatening for years. And Martin used to stay with me when he was on the run and hiding out in Dublin because I was the only one understood. Well, he was and, going through. And they also tried to blow over us. Now, I always make the point that if they were being glamorized, and if we were making them look like nice guys and good fellas, uh, then they wouldn't be trying to do the things they did to us. And they certainly approved. And remember on this island of Ireland as well, Mark, which is a very important point of it from history, from the point of view from young people growing up. We're the, in this little island, north and south, on the western edge of Europe, we're the only country, uh, the only, uh, the only ent- state entity uh, in Europe where two journalists were gunned down. Nowhere else. You know, it, it, it's it it is. I've it's twenty five years later nearly, and still I find it as astonishing now, and shocking now as it was then. That they can just gone down. So in terms of glamorizing them, no, we certainly don't. Know. Yeah, one video now when I was when I was explaining to my friends who you are, one video that I like to um send around is the one of you uh, going up to John Gilligan's house. And shouting at him over the fence. Oh, <laughs> oh that was great! Crack, yeah, that was very great. brave to walk up there and just start talking. I love. That's only about that's only about four years mm. ago. 
I just joined News Talk at the time. Uh, I was doing News Talk breakfast for a few years. I had to give it up because Jesus Christ, I was getting up at four o'clock every morning. That's another <laughs> day's work. Sorry, that's another story. That was more scary and horrible than than dealing with any criminal. But uh, we were doing a two-part documentary for uh, Virgin Media One, or the OTV Three. Uh, on it was twenty uh, the twenty-fifth year of no, sorry, it was the twentieth year uh, of Veronica's twentieth uh, anniversary. And to coincide with that, I did a two-parter for. Uh, the um for the pro for the tv tree anyway so we went out one day to jesbrook now gilligan gilligan jesbrook was this massive equestrian center that he was building uh, and i'll just give you a positive history of gilligan in case your listeners don't remember this john gilligan came out of prison he was a he was a hardware warehouse robber uh, a factory robber he's known as factory john he goes into prison he comes out of prison in the early 90s when there's a big evolution taking place in organized crime the former major armed robbers were all starting to dabble in drugs and they were moving mostly into the cannabis business then the cocaine was starting to take off and they were touching on the heroin business because the drug trade was building big time gilligan became one of these new entrepreneurs he and john trainer who's uh, uh, martin cattle's former conciliary or such they build this massive empire in a very short period of time, which I wrote a book called Evil Empire. And basically, Gilligan suddenly comes out of prison. He's on the dole and he's now a multimillionaire. And in those days, as incredible as it may seem to your listeners, but you could have as much money in the bank as you wanted and not have to explain where it came from. Today, that's unimaginable. Uh, and the reason it's unimaginable is what happened next. Veronica went out in 1995 to interview Gilligan and knock on his door and basically say to him, he was now living in this place, this equestrian centre, massive. It was becoming a world-class equestrian centre outside of Mucklin. It's just outside um, um, Endes- not Endescary, uh, Enfield yeah. in County Mead and uh, on the Mead-Clare border. And he built this mansion of a house. Now, this is a guy who was on 60 quid a week dole. He's just out of the nick. He's a career criminal. And she went up to ask him, where did he get the money? Now, the revenue couldn't, wouldn't go near him. Revenue wouldn't go near him. Social welfare wouldn't go near him. Because remember, they, Martin Cattle, years earlier, had taken out one of their inspectors and shot him. And he used to tell them to fuck off, quite literally. And they'd fuck off. And the police were sitting on their hands because they could do nothing. Because they had no power of arrest and no point, no way could go after his money. Anyway, Veronica asked the question that everybody wanted to ask. And he beat her violently and smashed her up. If you've seen the movie, that's very accurate, the Veronica Gearn movie. Um, then he had her murdered. And the reason he had her murdered was because he was going to go to jail. And this multi-million pound at the time drug trafficking operation was going to go south. He would lose his grip. Now, the drug trade that they had at that time, which was huge, is now minuscule compared to what it is today. So they murdered Veronica and they murdered Veronica uh, purely for that reason. And it was because of the money and this wealth. And then the criminal assets bureau set up this first question everybody asks is how do these guys have all of this money how can they get away with it now so the criminal assets bureau set up in 1996 gilligan is arrested in october 1996 in london collecting two or three hundred thousand pounds at the time not euros uh it from a a bag man who's coming from ireland because he was staying out of ireland because obviously he wanted to stay low because the big investigation was going on into veronica's murder and they were breaking down the gang at the time the guards very well and he then is arrested and he's put in, in, in custody in, um, in uh, London. And he, the process begins to take this property off him because this, is, this 
huge multi-million pound equestrian center and luxury house is the epitome and the symbol of everything that he stands for and everything he's about. So it must be taken off him because that's what the Criminal Assets Bureau is about. Now, John Gilligan mounted over 20 years of challenges, even though he was in prison for most of that time. He played ducks and drakes with the Irish legal system, whereby here am I in November or October, November, 1990 or 2016, doing a program about Veronica's murder 20 years later. And the little bastard is back in the house, living in the house quite openly, that he actually murdered Veronica over. Because she asked him where to get the money to buy that and build that. And he didn't want anyone pissing around or fucking yeah. around with that. And therefore, I see him, I'm walking up to the, the, the just with my mobile phone, look at it, I had it on at the time. And I see this little move, this figure moving through the bushes. And here he's coming out to start cutting trees because we were in yeah. the, at this stage the center has officially been seized by the state. Okay, but he's still he's still contesting everything. I'm still living here, and he's still living here 20 years later. You couldn't, your mom and dad couldn't do it if your dad didn't pay the bloody mortgage in your house. If you didn't pay the mortgage in your house, Mr. Cusack will be out, and you guys will be out in your arses within about three or four years max. Yeah. 20 years later, the most notorious criminals in the country is there, and I lost it completely. Out there trimming his edges. Parts of that was cut out, but I went after him. And you know what? Oh, my only regret is that he should have. I should have allowed him to come to the gate because you know what? I probably would have physically attacked him, and I called him a scumbag yeah. because I just believe it. This was the reason I was back at the site where started the mur- Veronica's murder, or started the plot, and this bastard was back here 20 years later. Now, thankfully, within about a month of that, and we did a big program, we did a lot of publicity about it on the Late Late Show talking about it and all of that. Um, he was out within a couple of months because this, the, the, it was part of the process. It was always going to come to that. But that famous video was, I just completely lost it mm. on a very person, that bastard. And I said it to him, I said, you're not such a big man now, John. Are you? Come on back. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to do you any harm. Come on and see, can you threaten me? That was that video, yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't understand why they couldn't just. If everyone knows that he set up Veronica Guillermo's murder, and if everyone knows he's there because of drug money, why can't they just pick him up and hold him in a jail or somewhere until they can prove it or just put him away? Like... No, but that's what law works. We have very, we have strict rules and regulations in relation to people's liberties, and and that's quite absolutely. Right. You need to have evidence. You need to convict somebody beyond all reason without. We know he planned the murder. We know he, he ordered it. One of the reasons we know he ordered it is because two or three of very vital witnesses against him gave statements to the Guardian, which corroborated those other members of his gang became the first supergrasses in the history of the state. And I'm conscious that your listeners probably don't remember this, but if you want to buy one of my books, I may be bringing a book about this out, out this next year, this year. There are all good bookshops, so pick up a few. Plug, early plug, like, but anyway, um, um, uh, where was I? Sorry, um, I lost my train of thought there. The, the witnesses were openly intimidated and threatened and withdrew their evidence from the guards. Now, what was vital about their evidence and the statements they gave was that they completely dovetailed with the supergrasses who came forward. Now, the supergrasses were attacked for telling lies and that some of their evidence couldn't be accepted because it wasn't corroborated, which is quite right. But if these witnesses had come into court, John Gilligan would have been convicted of Veronica's murder. In fact, the Court of Criminal Appeal, uh, several years later, when he, when he um, appealed, he, he got sentenced to 20 years for drug trafficking. Some people say he just got, a, he got, he got sentenced uh, for murder 
using uh, drug. He got he sentenced for drugs and uh, with a more uh, conviction. But he um, so he appealed it. But when the court of criminal appeal came back, one of the lines they I'll never forget it. They said if John Gilligan had been convicted of murder in the special criminal court at his trial when he was acquitted of her murder, but if he had been acquitted, uh, uh, murdered, uh, uh, convicted of the murder, then they would have found no reason to overturn that decision. In other words, what they said very gently was that they weren't criticizing the special criminal court, but they said, if they had found him guilty, we, the, the evidence in front of us, we couldn't see any reason to overturn that. And that to me is as good a vindication as anything. Now Gilligan uh, did his time, came out, played ducks and drakes, and then what happens? He gets himself shot straight away and seriously injured. And then he gets arrested uh, a couple of months ago and he's gonna go the way of the rest of them. Uh, he is going to end up the rest of his days in prison and I hope he rots. In so prison. he's in there at the moment, rotting away. He's a, but he's out at the moment on bail, but he was caught in Spain for another case, but he will go to prison, we hope. Um, and long may he stay there because you know he's one of the most despicable, lowly, uh, colorless creatures I've ever come across. There's always a bit of color and fun to some of these people. You know, yeah, everybody's yeah. multi-dimensional characters. You know, you know, there's, we're all. Some of us can be fun. It can be nice, and there's the different faces we turn to the world. But this bastard has nothing. Like the monk. Would be somebody I would consider to be a guy with a bit of class as a criminal. That's moving on to yeah. the next question about your new book. It's about the monk Jerry Hutch, isn't it? I've seen it in the shop a few times. I flicked through it. I haven't actually read it yet, but it's about it's about Jerry Hutch, obviously, and it's following um, his life. Is he dead or is he still alive? Has there been any backlash? Well, Jerry Hutch is, is uh, still very much alive. So he's still walking. Uh, he's very much alive. But just to, for your listeners again, I suppose. This to, I suppose, just to bring them up to date, it's that Jerry Hutch is the head of the Hutch family who are, you know, once so called one side in the so called Kin and Hutch uh, slaughter, which we saw breaking. It was not really a feud. You couldn't really, I, you know, in my book, I say it's not really a feud, it's mismatched. You know, they just unleashed, it was familicide. Uh, orchestrated by the Kinnons and their allies, the Burns, they went to wipe out the entire Hutch family over what happened in the Regency. And the Regency was a shocking and a shockingly audacious act of narco-terrorism uh, when these guys went into the to the last, in February, five years next month, uh, when they burst through the doors of uh, a boxing weigh-in at the Regency Hotel oh, yeah. uh, in, in February of, of 2016. Uh, and they shot dead one member of the gang, but they missed the Daniel Kinnan and the rest of them. And then they unleashed what they did. And Jerry Hutch had to leave. There was a one million euro bounty on his head. And they offered that to Kinnan's because they, they're a major international gang and they offered that money. So that they, the deal was that when he was abducted, and this was to all gangs right across Europe, uh, that if he could be found abducted and kept alive, uh, they wanted to get him into a room on their own and do to him the kind of things that you would see in Pulp Fiction and other crazy, uh, you wouldn't even see it in Love Hate, what they wanted to do to him. But the wily old fox that is the monk, uh, he's a very clever criminal, very dangerous criminal, but he um, he has evaded them. And I think the, the fact that the whole Kinahan gang is in a total state of 
collapse now. The Gardaí have completely wiped them out. motivated them. Yeah. Wiped uh, And so therefore, they wouldn't even be able to afford the one million bounty. And number two, they can't get hitmen to do anything. The cops got them brilliantly. They they bugged them and they, they followed them and they, they, they convicted them on their own words, which I know you guys are all well aware of that now because that's been a lot of that's been mm. in the media in the past couple of years so it's all kind of come and crashing yeah, so down recently and he's a very fascinating character he's a guy i've written about many many times he and i are careers <laughs> i suppose in a national, he's joined national journalism like batman and joker <laughs> about a week after he joins national criminal notoriety <laughs> you know he pulls off this huge robbery and I arrive in town to work for this only world for the first time. You know, I always felt there was some symbiotic relationship there somewhere. Okay, um, so talking about crime in Ireland now, we've already obviously been talking about crime in Ireland, but recently there's been a few things in the media that I've read myself. Um, it's been a bit, it's obviously gone quiet over the last few years, but one big thing that I saw was, you know, Daniel Kinahan being a, a boxing promoter for An- Anthony Joshua, a boxer mm-hmm. that most people would know. Um, yeah. The IRA... Become drug dealers. Tyson yeah. Fury, lamp, lamp, yeah. The IRA basically being drug dealers now, and um, that horrible murder that we spoke about earlier of um, Keen Mulrey Woods, who was decapitated mm. and kind of caught up and spread around the place, sent to all these different houses. Well, he's caught up in pieces, yeah. But like you know, they're they're that's a different aspect to the that's not part of the Kinahan thing, but but what it does, I suppose, maybe you're, you're on the line. I, I, I would say this to all young people and old people talking to young people never is not cool. So <laughs> you guys just say, oh, there's no one listening, it's gobshite. But um, I've kids myself and I would sit or consider myself relatively well switched on to younger people. Uh, I would say that, and you know, that the drug trade uh, and, and the prevalence of drug abuse in society or drug use. Uh, it's so normalized, but I have seen so many kids' lives being completely destroyed uh, as a result of their involvement with the drug culture. As in, okay, a lot of kids are taking stuff and smoking weed and they're um, doing ta- some of the pills that kids are doing. Jesus Christ, man, there's ketamine and stuff like this. This stuff is well, you're like just think about your life, mm. your body, and your mind. Fuck, it's terrible. But um, you know, and they, they take coke. Coke is huge, and the coke trade really did usher in the whole new world of of, of criminality. After John Gilligan, by the way, is taken out of the picture. I suppose yeah. it's a bit of a link back far, but um, a new, much more virulent kind of gang started to emerge in the so-called Celtic Tiger uh, in 19, the late nineties, early noughties. And that's when we saw the spiral of violence and murder and butchery that we had never seen before. Because I remember in 1993, there were three gangland murders because I chronicled, chronicled every one of them. In 2016, there was 22 or 23. Jesus, that's some uh, joke. Completely innocent people. And people were being butchered and murdered in a way. But what fueled all of that was the drug trade. Now, go back to people. And this is where we have an ambivalence in us. People are snorting coke having a boot at the weekend and saying, this is great, which is cool. I'm not doing any harm to anyone. But what they're doing is they're fueling all of this. So well, that's a big moral argument. People switch off that. People dissociate themselves from their from their actions. That's a normal human thing to do. But when I say, but first of all, it is can be very damaging from an addiction point of view, and it can make you engage in behavior that's just stupid and crazy, and people get screwed up. And like, there's no point in me telling it's It happens to people, so it's going to happen no matter what. You're not going to stop them doing that. But it's when people start 
getting layoffs, we call them, you know, or we used to call them, um, you know, loans or get stuff on scratch. These people are highly, the people running some of these drug trade, drug trade generally in every town and village in Ireland can be predatory, uh, 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 manipulative, exploitative. And I've seen so many kids being caught up, like young dads going to prison, and the cops will tell you, this young lad, this young Mark Cusick's been caught with two kilos of coke. He's going to go to prison for three or four years. Um, and the only reason he's doing it is because he started doing a bit of coke himself and he got wound up in this bullshit, this world. They attracted him in, they gave him lots of money, made him feel big about himself. There's loads of different reasons. But also then kids who are just normal kids, like as in don't come closer, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking with my criminology hat, there's different factors going on here. But normal, so-called normal kids, you know, kids who grow up in nice homes like yourself, Loads of them getting in trouble because then they are the kind of people that they like to latch on to because they can threaten mommy and daddy. And I saw mothers and fathers traipsing off to credit unions during the height of the crash. And it's heartbreaking to watch where they had to go to credit unions and borrow money that they couldn't afford to pay Johnny's uh, cocaine bill. And I've seen so many young kids being shot dead, badly injured, then getting criminal convictions, then be thrown in their lives. And they will always say to you when they get to their 30s and their 40s, Jesus, man, if only we had avoided that. And that's, we live in this kind of world where I, they're so easy to get sucked down. I, I did a talk for kids who were in a school, it's a, a sort of a special school where kids, all these kids have been in trouble before and they're, you know, very dysfunctional backgrounds and different individuals and behaviors and stuff. And they've been expelled from the schools they're in and they were given a second chance. And I was talking to them and, I, and it, it was, as I say, I'm switched on about things. I've, reared a couple of kids myself and, and I'm not a total prude but I could see I could pick out one young lad who was 15 who he's going to kill somebody and I picked him out myself and afterwards the teacher said my god how do you know that because that guy was expelled from school for stabbing somebody it was the way he was talking and to hear kids at that age 50 and you could see one young fellow 16 there and you just knew he was as white but he thought he was cool and I said to him afterwards I said you know an awful lot more about this drug trade than I would do. They start laughing, you know, big cocky young fella. But I could see where he's going because, he, and the, the one the teacher said, yeah, afterwards, oh, you tweaked him. Yeah, we, we know about his, his hanging out with a crew. But the point about it was, I could see that young lad, a lovely, bright, intelligent young lad that any mammy and daddy would be delighted to have. And he loads of character. And, and you just know in your heart where that boy is going to be in 10 years time. That innocence will be gone. That's, he thinks he's the man of the world now, he's mixed up. And that's happening in towns all over Ireland where it never happened before. That, that, that uh, you know, and, and that's, um, so I, I think, that's why I think as well, and I, I've often heard these words being said to me when I was younger, but I, and maybe it's a thing, the inevitability of the cycle of life, but I find myself, saying to you and to your co your 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 peers that you know I, I think it's a very it's a very difficult time for you guys to be growing up and you know you deserve all the slack you can get you know especially with all this COVID-19 and everything you've got so many interests and all this bullshit like you guys know nothing else apart from your mobile phones and the technological age. I remember when well, there wasn't a mobile phone. I remember we used to ring in copy to the newspaper, an AB phone, an AB was you put in the money, press button A and press button B to get money back out and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the point I'm making about it, 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 young people who get bullied and pushed around and terrorized, 
like it used to be a case where you could a kid could come home and you know your mum and dad said well Mark's upstairs in bed he's safe now it's a case whereby and I know we're way way off subject here but the kid your kid can be still bullied and terrorized and being coerced and groomed and all of those different things that all kinds of things when they're at in home. the comfort of their own yeah yeah and how do you stop and, that and, what's the solution to stop young people kind of getting groomed into that you know what i think it's tougher being a parent now for young mm. kids as well like shout out to the parents because they have to watch for all this yeah. stuff the vast majority of people, by the way, criminologically, everybody's vast majority of people statistically all turn out fine. We get through. But I just think that there are so many more challenges and threats and 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 risks that kids face that they weren't around when I was growing up. How do you stop that? It's about awareness. Um, but I do think that we are coming to a stage whereby society uh, is going to have to confront the uh, overwhelming influence and power, unbridled power, unfettered power of what we call social media. Because you, I can't say such a person is a Torag or such a person without absolute justification. Uh, you know what I mean? I would be sued. People go online. I've been, I've trended on several occasions, getting trolled and abused and battered by people that screwed up. They don't want to do it. That's, I don't do Twitter or any of that crap. But, uh, but the point of it is that, that, States must take them on, uh, and the Australians are trying to do it, and they must take them on because if we don't, like taking on Donald Trump uh, in one way was a brilliant thing to see happening. We all agree with that. Mm. That psychopathic, it's getting kicked off, clown. You know, it's what I can't find an adjective. I'm trying to talk to, but, but the point of it is, it is an argument. But the, 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 they would talk the media giants. Social media giants to they, for them to arbitrarily decide that we're going to shut him up, this kick him out, like. horrible down who's trying to subvert democracy. The problem is the democracies and the governments and the states that, where we are, we should have we like we have a we have laws protecting us and prohibiting us from doing things and controlling our behavior then the social media must be controlled and i think that something that something's going to have to be done at some stage of it i don't know what's going to be done um because i think it's it, it, it's brilliant uh social media and the, the whole digital age has revolutionized life and the world and speeded up the world a lot but there's a very very dark side to all of it and i think that you know we really to start taking it on and we're not doing yeah. it fast. It's enough. like the Wild West, there's just no laws or anything, but I think, especially with Donald Trump getting kicked off, I think we're kind of moving into a new age of it becoming more regulated and more kind of controlled. Oh, but you see, there's an awful lot of, an awful lot of flat earth oh, conspiracy <laughs> theory, local dragging gobshot in Ireland. And the stuff what to do, and what we study this in criminal psychology as well, is that we're creating bubbles Uh media so whereby you have an echo chamber where somebody will only go into that uh, to a, a world populated by common beliefs uh, like-minded lunatics uh, and i think as well another thing that i think is very very bad is this woke generation we have for now people are it, it, particularly in, in in third level campuses across the world including in ireland i'm now deciding they're all so woke and so cool and so liberal that they're going to shut down any other conversation that they consider offensive. This is another part of the bullshit that goes on with, uh, you know, and social media fuels. 
people should be allowed and to speak and and then be hammered down if they're like the likes of Donald Trump telling absolute lies like the media did challenge him and he tried to shut them down and tried to use social media to support yeah. democracy but I think I think we really need to sit back and study that script very very closely because I think you know for from a future for future generations particularly it needs to be controlled the same way that when the wild west was formed you had the lawmen went out there eventually with six guns uh whatever there were names i can't think of their names the famous uh, cowboy sheriffs and all that kind of stuff to bring order and then to order society where everybody's just shooting and killing each other you can't do that you have to have laws live by certain yeah rules. i mean i'm blathering on here my wine is nearly gone um so just speaking specifically about limerick um, recently there's been a bit of a weird resurgence now I don't know if this is me just being disconnected and kind of my generation being disconnected from it or the public in general but it seems like it's been quite a few kind of quiet years in Limerick apart from a couple of um, shootings and murders I was under the impression that the Dundons and that kind of feud had and similars had died out did it ever really go away or is it a case of kind of silent rivers running deep in the city <laughs> no I tell you uh, first of all I always make the point to people uh you only know, and this is probably a crude analogy, but it's the best way to do it. Um, I learned it from something that happened in my own house. But, uh, you only know that you've got a rat infestation problem in your back garden when you see a rat on a number of occasions or you see a couple of them. That's not to mean that they just arrived. It means that they're now in the state where they've infested the place so much that they become obvious. Now, when I use that analogy to talk about gangland murders, when you start seeing young fellas being shot dead on the street, uh, that means the problem has been festering there for a long, long time. It only gets our attention uh, and makes us sit up and take note when somebody gets murdered. Now, I wrote a book about Limerick and I spent a lot of time in Limerick. Uh, when this, and it was a 14-year war, I described it as, and that's what it was. And it started when the McCarthy Dundons got together in Limerick around 2000 and they unleashed absolute mayhem. And I have never seen anything like it. Uh, I have never, in despite the fact that it's been ferocious feuds, including the Kinnahans and all of that stuff up here in Dublin and uh, other stuff that you see around the world, uh, I have never seen anything like the McCarthy Dundons. And we call them murdering because that's all you could call them. They were depraved, psychopathic monsters. They were like an absolute aberration of humanity they were mutants and my good friend Steve Collins in Limerick who is a very close friend I'm a very close family friend and Steve Collins you will recall and your listeners will recall was the man who brought the people of Limerick onto the streets from the his son was murdered yeah yeah it, 11, 12 years ago now. after the pub when he went into the pub in Limerick and shot yeah him. and they burned the pub down yeah. and he and he's still there done the money into the pub. And, he, and, and I know he's there and uh, but he always called them pond life. Uh, and I went, I, I, I had the, I don't know what you call it, an honor, but I'm a close friend, but I went on that journey with Steve for a good five, six years, close friend to, to what he was going through just as an observer and to help him any way I could. What those people did to Limerick was unbelievable. A city, a beautiful, vibrant, fantastic city was held hostage by these Neanderthals that couldn't write their name between them. It was brilliant. It was down to the their own ferocity and their own brutality, which made them their own people turn against 
and give evidence to the police because they're the only people they could go to. The work of the Guardian in Limerick and the other units across the country, what they did with them was spectacular. And the people of Limerick themselves. So I would not say uh, that you would ever see the likes of that again in Limerick. Now, that's a bold statement to say. I would say, I would, sorry, correct myself to say you would not see that in Limerick for a good number of years again. You would not see the dynamics are, of, of change. These people were just black-eyed murderers. They were soulless creatures. I met them face to face. They volunteered to shoot me at one stage for the guys in Dublin. Um, they helped murder a young, innocent woman for a guy. By the salute, had her murdered on the doorstep of her house while her two sons were asleep inside in her house in swords and went to murder her solicitor then because this guy was a friend that's done this. Oh, it's they were horrific people. The thing is, they have got their stuff. We talked about Mikey Kelly earlier on. Those guys are in the past. Um, for a situation to develop the same way again, I think it would be very difficult. I think the guards in Limerick would be pretty on much on top mm. of it. But I'll tell you one thing. It is wonderful to see. I, I wouldn't be in any way saying that Limerick hasn't had a murder. I, I don't know how many years now since Limerick had a murder. One time was murder capital of Europe. It, it is a great, it is wonderful to see. It is really wonderful to see. Because I spent so much of my life down there. Uh, covering that, uh, and... The people of Limerick are fantastic people, very resilient people. And what they went through, what the people in those estates went through, Banlacora Weston, and out in South Hill, and a place in the Moiras, at the hands of these bastards, was unbelievable. These are all decent people trying to raise kids. And so many children are in prison. I call them children, you know, guys who are 17, 18, your age, when they were caught stupid things for these guys. Because, again, I was mentioning it earlier, the kids who were forced to go carry guns and carry drugs, they were too terrified to ever speak. The young lad who went and shot Roy Collins, Steve's son, yeah. you know, even Steve Collins himself was prepared to go into the prison and sit down with the young lad and said, I know you shot my son dead, but I know you were just a vessel. A you, vessel were groomed into it. you were just, you were just, no more than the weapon, you were just used. And the people who drove you to do that, but he would never say, speak. And that showed the kind of terror. These the power they had. The only, way, the only way to take them on is through the power of the state. And the state put them on, and the state put them away. The exact same way they've done with the Kinnahans now as well. So the good guys always win in the end, no matter how PC or anti-establishment some of your listeners may be. But they always, go to, they always go to jail and rot. <laughs> so now I'm just going to ask you a few questions about um, some of the more heavy-hitting cases in Ireland, just to get a few facts that I could maybe use for episodes if I did one on Larry Murphy or something in the future that I could take out as sound bites. Um, uh... I'll I'll do Larry Murphy first. Um, Larry Murphy is obviously a big name in the Irish crime scene. He's one of the few people that you could consider almost a serial killer. Obviously, he wasn't um, convicted of anything, but he is close to it. Um, he's connected to the Vanishing Triangle. Do you think that Larry Murphy had something to do with that, or do you think that his offence with the woman was a one-time thing? I think Larry M Murphy is the ultimate bogeyman, and he has been since 2000, for the past 20 years. And the reason he is the bogeyman is that a number of women went missing in that triangle that you talk about. It started going missing around 1993. Uh, now, it was a geographical area. Jojo Dollard was uh, taken from Moon in uh, County Carlo. Um, Annie McCarrick was taken last seen alive in Johnny Fox's pub in the Dublin mountains. 
um, Deirdre Jacob was last seen leaving Newbridge. Um, all of this happened in the space of a few years. Now, in 2000, this, the most extraordinary set of events happened. This young woman was walking near her car in a car park in Cairo when she was abducted by Larry Murphy, who had stalked her out. Uh, she was beaten. He had it all planned, put into a car, taken away. He took her to a pre-planned location, he tied her up. It's horrific what he put her to. He beat her, smashed her jaw. He raped her. He brought her then to a place which, it, it, when people who study serial killers would always talk about what they call a killing field, where they have a and modus operandi of how they, they, they kill, but they also have parts of a sort of identifiable pattern of behavior, which would include um, where they dispose of the bodies and stuff like that. He was, he brought her to the Glen of a Man. Now I know the Glen of a Man very, very well because of a lot of mountain hiking and running and stuff through the years and camping out there. And it's, it's, it's beside the military grounds in the Glen of a Man. Uh, but he brought her to this place, the most desolate place, on a cold, miserable night in the pitch dark. And it was purely by accident or purely by luck or purely by divine intervention, whichever way you want to look at it, that two men were out poaching that night and they heard the screams. She was naked, this girl, and he took her out and he was raping her. He was going to kill her. And she knew he was going to kill her. But she started screaming. She tried to make a run for it. She ran into barbed wire. It was horrific what happened to the poor girl. But these two guys are out poaching and they hear, and they thought it was a fox screaming. And then they responded and they spotted this guy. He sees the lights coming and they spot Larry Murphy. Larry Murphy is arrested the next morning by the police. He's clearly linked to this crime because he's been spotted and also DNA and, and all of that. The extraordinary thing is that he never ever spoke about it. He never admitted anything. He pleaded guilty to abduction and false imprisonment and rape at the first opportunity. So he never ever explained anything. Now, this is what set him up as the bogeyman uh, for the Irish public, and quite rightly so to a degree. Um, there is one of the aspects of everything about that case that I've just outlined to you speaks of a serial killer, speaks of somebody who's done this before, speaks of a very dangerous uh, psychopathic mind. Um, there is one case that the police believe or suspect that Larry Murphy was involved in. That was the disappearance of Deirdre Jacob. They do not suspect him in any other. That he had, this is through several cold case reviews that he was involved in the other disappearances because of the times and the places where he was because they traced everything and they spent, they went to huge lengths. They actually even got somebody in the prison cell with them to give them statements, to talk to him. And I tracked him then, oh, when did I go after him? He got out of prison in 2010. I went to work, I was working with some, the News of the World at the time, I left the Sunday World, and we got a touch, a tip, that he was coming back to Ireland from Barcelona. He popped up on the radar. He hadn't been seen for years, or since, sorry, since he left. And so he was out now about a year, yeah, about a year. His, he had to come back get a passport. So we met him at the airport, tried to talk to him, he wouldn't talk to me. Um, 
big scoop to get him. When he left, I had a surveillance team follow him. We got him when he was getting on the boat and we tailed him up through into France and he, we lost him on a train in Paris. He then pops up again in 2012. We get a, 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 a touch of where he is and this time he's in Amsterdam. So I go to Amsterdam with two of my colleagues and we set up a bit of a, a surveillance operation and we found him. And, but then we had to watch him like, like it was, it was, I was going to do it for, it was as a self-employed journalist, I did this. I, I financed the whole thing. It's very expensive. Oh, so it paid for yourself. Cars and all that kind of stuff. But we, we had, so we were over and back over a period of a couple of months. And I remember um, one day I was sitting at home in Leitrim and the lads were over uh, in Holland and they were following our man. And uh, Parik, one of my colleagues, rang me and said, listen, we have Larry Murphy, uh, he's here today, we, we're following him, it's great. So we were watching him, we were not going to jump on him, we wanted to get loads of footage of him and pictures of him and all that kind of stuff, and uh, to be absolutely sure where he was, so when we did go to, to doorstep him, we were ready, and we had all the equipment there to record his every word, because he is, remember, he has never ever explained what he did. But on that particular day, where I was, I was in Leitrim, as I say, then where I'm from, and, um, I got those, these flurries of excitement occurs again through Facebook and social media every now and again. Larry Murphy's been seen in Limerick. Larry Murphy's like an there was legend. suddenly a big, yeah, there was a load of sightings about him, of him at around that time where I was in in a place called Drumlish in North Longford, which is only about 15 minutes up the road. Then he'd been spotted in Carrick and Shannon. Then he'd been spotted in Ruski. These are all areas geographically close to where I was. Yeah. And people were absolutely adamant. They were ringing me about it because they obviously people I knew locally because they didn't, well, he knows a bit about Larry Murphy. And I said, he's not here. And the reason I know he's not here is because I just talked to a fellow five minutes ago who was following him on the street in Amsterdam. Now, I didn't tell him where, obviously, because it was the story we were doing. But the point about it was that he became this quintessential bogeyman. And these little bushfires happen. I can guarantee you, uh, from what I know of, of uh, Larry Murphy, and I know probably as much as any of the rest of them know, uh, it, it, and that's saying that nobody really knows a huge amount about Larry Murphy. But I guarantee you one thing, he's never coming back to Ireland. He's moaning and whinging all the time. Like he, he's a victim according to himself, which is another part of the classic sort of be, be psychological profile of a person like him. He's poor me, hate me, why would they leave me alone? I didn't do nothing. But he never explained what he did. So he is suspect for one of the cases. There is a, a murder case being put together at the moment. They seem to be, the Guardian are really giving it a good shot to see where they can go. So I, I don't think, uh, like a lot of these cases, these big murders and big cases, like Jack the Ripper in London, the 1800s, he hasn't got away yet, you know, even though he's long, 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 long dead. But that story's never got away and people will never quit. Until the, and a, a lot of these cases do solve themselves. Like the Graham Dwyer case, I wrote a book about some years ago, Lane O'Hara and all of that. That was an example of the bones of the dead cry out for justice and they certainly got it there. Uh, and he was unmasked. And, so I think that the case of Larry Murphy uh, is far from over. I, I, we haven't heard the last of Larry Murphy. He, is, it's, he's, he became such a creature. I remember when I was younger, someone coming up to, running up to us as friends or whatever and saying that someone in the village had seen Larry Murphy, you know, one of the friends, and they tried to take her. And I remember a whole kind of flurry of excitement. It's a bit like kids years ago seeing Freddy exactly, Krueger. Yeah, yeah. A white fan pulling around the corner and he would scream and run away from it. Like he became such a creature. Is there, do you know where he is at the moment now? Or is he that's just... what I'm saying. It, it becomes a sort of a, it's, it's, that's media driven uh, for that. Um, but also you see, 
we have always been, again, going back to what I said to you about, about glamorizing crime and fascination. People are fascinated by all of this stuff. Fascinated, but fascinated. There's voyeurism in it. There's prurience in it. There's genuine fear in it. And there's very genuine interest because we as a herd, um, I'm going to use the sort of social Darwinistic sort of comparisons here, you know, where we as a herd of creatures um, to, we, we have a normal sort of pattern of behavior and bonding and cohesion. When something or one member of the herd defies how everything that we understand to be the rules and regulations and of normal behavior or the parameters of normal behavior, and they offend against that in such a brutal and horrific way, now, I'm not talking about criminals. Criminals are easy. People understand criminals. Criminals get guns, shoot each other over drugs and shit like that. That's okay. But when you see something depraved, some creature amongst you, that this person is a normal person, like a twig in the forest, and that he has um, done something absolutely horrific. We, it's a bit like the white blood cells in your body when they rush to try and take on an infection. <laughs> we're looking at vaccines at the moment, not what we're talking about. And we're trying to put something into our bodies to hit this horrific COVID-19 infection, to kill it off. Yeah. And that's what we, so we, we, what society wants to do, you put, you put, first of all, police go and investigate and that's why we have prisons and we must take these people off the street and people, you were talking about this creature, people say, you know, we need that person, that creature off the streets so humanity feels that it can be safe. You can be out of the way. We can forget about him. You know, yeah. Uh, but but uh, my explanation is that we are fascinated by all of this because we also want to know, we want to explain him because we. it's instinctive, whether we don't, we, an unconscious to us, to our collective conscience, that, um, you know, we want to understand how, something like this could go wrong because that's been the tradition of criminological theory from the very beginning of criminological uh, investigation or, or, or academia and that is that society tr has to explain the dysfunction among the muscles because you see they don't people commit crime it's, it's also a reflection of the society you're in but you, you have to try and work out how did this monster be created and we must expunge ourselves off this bogeyman this ghost this creature uh, so that we can then move on. And there have been so many people like that in our history. Like, there's a great one on Netflix, The Ripper. Uh, mm, you know, the the Ripper, Ripper, yeah. I, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant document, even though we know the story. It, it's just brilliant going through that again and to see the kind of... How it unfolded. The, the race, the mm. sexism of the time. and Because the women were... The, the victims were, were prostitutes and things like that and how, how they were viewed by a society. But, but I'm just making the point that that's why we're fascinated by this. Because instinctively we want to know how could a creature like that be created? Be how could that come out of our society? Did we create him? Did we create him, or did he just evolve himself? Or was he just a was he just a, a runt of the litter? Was he just a, a, a unique one-off monster? But what what separates a man like Jerry Hutch or John Gilligan from Larry Murphy? Are, is it money? Like they go out, they shoot, whatever. What separates them from a man who's purely driven to kill when you're talking about so what differentiates because I, I i could spend all night and i've taken up far too much of your time now at this stage kid but uh you know um i could differentiate between john gilligan and jerry hutch i can differentiate between several different all the criminals i know uh, they're all individuals um 
Gilligan is a horrific, horrible person, but we can understand what made him a horrible person. He's just a psychotic, greedy, nasty little man. Uh, Jerry Hutch is a criminal because he's also a nasty uh, thug himself in his own right, but he was also a man with a bit of class and style and a bit of ethos about him. And he, well, I suppose he was a bit of a, what they call an ordinary criminal. Okay, so what makes them different? I think, like, it's because they're not, there is no predictive script <clears throat> for the serial killer or for the person who commits an atrocious, unprecedented type of crime. Um, Purely emotional, to fill their own needs kind of a way. There is no script because you have to, and that's what, like, and it, again, why does the crime genre is so popular? Because what are people fast? People are always fascinated by stories, movies about guys who are, like Graham Dwyer, who murdered Elaine O'Hara. Like he was, as again, essential. I wrote a book about him as well. He's the, the twig in the forest. Yeah. Try and find twig in the forest. You know what I mean? He's just Mr. Nobody. And then you try, and he's Mr. Respectable. He's a middle class guy, perfectly normal. At least with the thug, with Jerry Hutcher, John Gilly, you knew what you were getting. You <laughs> just saw them. Yeah, you, you could tell. There's two. Well, we know who he is, and we have already got a bit of the story, but you walk past this Graham Dwyer. Or you walk past even Larry Murphy before he was caught in 2000 and you say, oh, there's a nice, decent fella. He's all right. Very quiet fella. He's himself. He's, he's a carpenter. Your man's a good architect. You know, and, and it's almost as well, part of the collateral damage when somebody like that is discovered. Like, for example, Graham Dwyer's wife now has nothing to do with him ever again. She didn't know about this monster. She knew nothing about him. It was just... Tom again. Like, and the first thing is the collateral damage is the people around him said they just didn't know. They just didn't see it. And that's what happens. These people, monsters like that, hide in plain sight. So there is a very, very big difference between them. Mm. Uh, and any of those kind of guys, like the guy Hennessy, I can take off the top. Mark Hennessy, yeah. Dead, who actually, guard, I, I knew the guard. Justine I, Valdez, he shot. shot. I mean, he raped and yes. murdered. You're good, yeah. you're good. You're definitely going to be, like, you, you got to head. Jeez, I'm so fed supposed to tell you this. You're telling me, baby. But, right. but that, that was another mm. very... Because he just Bizarre, switched, he just switched out of nowhere. Like no one knew about his. And you see what happens there when you're going studying his background. The first thing you have to look at is did he do it before? And he didn't do it before. As I say, but Larry Murphy, we only reckon there might be one. With Graham Dwyer, uh, and these three characters could all fall into the serial killer bracket for different reasons. Um, uh, probably Hennessy was more chaotic. Uh, than the other two he crimes. just had one bad day the where he just kind of premeditated um uh sorry i lost my train of thought again you know to cut yeah. that again <laughs> yeah but you have men there's i think ireland only has one set of serial killers that were um john shaw and joffrey evans and they went around on kind of killing sprees murdering and raping i think three or four women but they were purely driven by like their emotional kind of fulfilling their own kind of sexual needs but I think with John Gilligan and them it's more driven by money or they're more in the physical world where killing is a side effect of what they're doing it's not what they're well, doing they, you know they murder people but it's business for them yeah know? yeah that's the word yeah, it's business um, but that's the dichotomy between the two um, that fascinates and terrifies us all at the same time you know and and that's why the bookshelves behind me are stuffed <laughs> stories of people like that so Last question now, because I have a great answer to all those questions, but it's just, 
how has your career changed as a result of the lockdown and how much how much work have you got done like did that book start during lockdown or have you been doing that for years the monk book i wrote that i wrote that well the, all my books are based on his you know experience that i've had and story what happened overnight so you know i was looking at the christy kennans and the jerry hutch of this world 30 years ago um so i wrote a book uh, during lockdown um i've been doing a bit of work for the irish independent um I was working on radio up until two years ago now. So, you know, for I did two years of that, and I was two years I'll never get back in my life again. But uh, I, uh, it was, you know, it was getting up in the morning at four o'clock. Oh my God, it took me so long to get back to normal. But uh, it, so I, I've sort of like been quiet uh, in recent years. And I don't go around kicking indoors and yeah. banging on doors and criminals. I, I like, you know, I, I, I've settled down. I prefer a bit. to sit lecturing now and also analysis and, and opinion and stuff like that about it and, and I've, I've i have another few books in me um so i'm told so and maybe a movie as well jesus a few movies keep, <laughs> put a few pork chops on the table on sunday you know, yeah. so. <laughs> so thanks very much for talking to me that was a great interview covered a lot of a lot of ground explained a good few things that i wanted to cover um is there anything that you want to um, promote or obviously the new book go check it out it's in all good Irish bookstores uh, <laughs> is it all good online, online bookstores, bookstores. Uh, just to click away that's part of the uh, the digital age that I'm totally in favour of is the commerce I think and buy the monk but the monk may we may have an announcement in the next month or two for about the monk in terms of another medium uh, for the book another outing for stay the book. tuned and I, I may be doing another book but Murder Inc. It's yeah. a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, Mark. Murder Inc. is a very good book as well that other people should check out. So thanks very much for talking to me. I will stop the video now. So thank you so much to Mr. Williams for coming on to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. Go check out his new book, The Monk. It's in all good bookshops. Um, Google his name on YouTube and a lot of very interesting videos come up. He's produced a ridiculous amount of content over the years and his story is very interesting. So check that out. Um, if Whatever app you're listening to what I'm, I'm listening to the podcast on right now, please save it or like it or share it or do, do it, whatever you want. I only do this for fun, but it would be great to get um, listens up. And if you save it or share it or whatever, it's a big help. So thank you so much. Um... I will see you whenever the next episode comes out. I'm not sure and I'm not sure when I'm going to cover it. And this was a very big deal. And I'm going to take a bit of a break. But when I come back, I will come back strong. So thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time. And the word for this week is going to be um, gangland violence. So three, two, one. Gangland violence.